Okay, Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all, th- all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him... For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again... Here I am, and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You may be seated. Thank you for the reading of the word this morning. This has been a joy to work through, at least to this point, the book of Hebrews. I've thoroughly enjoyed the time in the Word. And the passage today has, in many ways, helped me, taught me, enlightened me on the need for Christ's coming here to earth. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Before we do, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Father, in the midst of a world that seems to be crumbling all around us, I pray that you would show yourself strong once again. And instead of fear, I pray that we would wait patiently on you to work in our midst. The psalmist declares that the Lord is his light and salvation. Whom shall I fear, he says. The Lord is the strength of my life. 
of whom shall I be afraid? Father, we know that fears of all kinds have gripped the souls of men today. Fear of death and dying. Fear of provisions not getting met. Fear of not measuring up. Fear of failure. Fear of broken relationships. Fear of decision making and the implications of making hard and necessary decisions. The fear of man drives many of our fears, Lord. And I pray that as your sons and daughters in Christ, we would exercise a proper fear of the Lord even as we live here on this earth. And I pray that you would embolden us to operate with a holy reverence for your name and a steadfast dependence upon your word of promise. The foundations around us might be taking a hit. But we see here in this word that the captain of our salvation has made a way for us through the storms and chaos of life. He has gone before us and tasted death for everyone. He's become the pioneer. He's become the leader. He's become the captain of our salvation by means of his incarnation. You sent your son into the sin-infested world to show the way. And that way was a blood-stained way leading to a cross. So we thank you this morning, Lord, for that cross. But as this text will make evidence, we are also indebted to what preceded the cross. And that was your son's arrival down here to earth. The incarnation was necessary in your plan of redemption. And we praise you for Emmanuel, God with us. The testimony of the scriptures is that you are God among your people. We see that as you spoke long ago to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. We see that you are God with your people as testified through the Gospels when Jesus walked the face of this earth. And we see the testimony that even now you are God in your people through the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, it's a joy to be able to see how you have progressively moved in our direction that we might know you and be known by you. So, Father, in the name of the Incarnate One, Jesus, our merciful and faithful High Priest, we pray to you and we ask that you would speak to us just now and teach us what you would have us to know and live out. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the death of of Jesus, the Son of God, the, the Messiah, is a hinge point of discussion for many people today. But especially for the audiences being addressed in this book of Hebrews. To those who were Jewish Christians, those who had accepted God's offer of salvation through His Son Jesus. And then there were those who were Jewish and knew the message of Christianity. But for various reasons could never embrace for themselves a dying Savior. Two different lines of thought. And as I considered the scope of text before us in Hebrews chapter 2, 10 through 18, that's what we'll be looking at this morning. I was reminded of a, of a typical question that's asked among the circle of Christianity. And I was thinking about this even in my own household. If I was to have them gathered around and ask the question, why did Jesus die? I would probably get a response that would go something like this. He died to save me from my sin. 
the response would be something along that line. Which is pretty correct in terms of scripture. Matthew one twenty one. remember? When the angel's speaking to Joseph and he's telling him this son that's going to come, what he's going to be doing. What's his purpose? He says it's to save his people from their sins. That's what he says. So the answer that we come up with is, is a right answer. But I believe it's oftentimes accompanied with a lack of understanding. It's, it's the patented answer, right that it is, but it also connects to a drift of the mind. And he's already talked about this drift, this warning not to drift. It's an answer that comes with a disconnect between the mind and the heart, between our belief and our behavior. And see, a particular message heard over a great length of time can do one of two things. It can reinforce the truth, but I believe it can also dull the senses. When you've heard the response, you've heard the answer over a great length of time, which those of us in Christ, if you grew up in a Christian home, you've heard that answer to the question, why did Jesus die? He died to save me from my sins. That can bolster your faith, your encouragement, or it can dull your senses just to the simple fact that I know, I know the answer. I believe we do this a lot in Christian circles. For a fact, we, we know, for example, the Bible is God's revealed word to man. We know that it's profitable for our soul. We know that the Bible is God's truth given to us out of his great storehouse of love. And yet, what you experience in your life concerning God's Bible is far from what you know about it. If God's word is life-giving and it's able to bring about saving faith to those who hear it, then why don't we live differently right now? Why is it that the persecuted believers around the world are the ones who seem to cherish this Bible? I still can't get that video out of my mind we saw years ago of the group, I believe it was in China. And someone delivered a group, a box of Bibles. And I remember them tearing those boxes open and giving them to those believers. And they were embracing God's word. They cherished it. I believe one of the problems going on here is that we know the answer to the question. We've heard it asked, why did Jesus die? And we're programmed to reply to save us from our sins. Because it's something we know intellectually, we can recite a correct answer. But actually what's happening is far greater damage to the soul. We begin to drift. And the Hebrew writer has already issued this warning in chapter 2, 1 through 4, of not drifting in light of what? In light of so great a salvation that we've been given. So you see, when we give an I know kind of response... It contributes to this drifting spirit which can characterize us as lifeless, apathetic, even dull. And what a danger to essentially, think about it, to essentially yawn out the right answer from the well of intellectualism. In doing so, we are neglecting the majesty of so great a salvation. And for the Jewish listener, if we think about the other side, the problem is not so much in answering why did Jesus die. I would tweak the question a little bit. 
And it would go something like this. Why would this Messiah have to die? Why would he have to die? Remember the Bible talks about how for the Jewish folks, the, Jesus was a stumbling stone, wasn't he? If the Messiah is deemed the conquering king and savior, how can it be that he dies? And so holding to this understanding of the Messiah becomes a challenge then really to biblical understanding of who God is and why he sent his son to earth. The follow-up for the Jewish listener, apart from Christ, might not be, I know, but instead it might be, I know better. I know better. The response on the side of the Christian who's known Jesus his whole life is, I know. And that leads to this casual drifting, this intellectual exercise of simply answering the question correctly. But what the Jewish listener is addressing is more of an independent spirit. Listen, I know a better way for God to work his salvation plan. It reminds me of some things I've read in Romans 9. Since when does the clay have the authority to tell the potter what is worthy of salvation and what is not? The audience of Hebrews is Jewish. And some know the right answers about Jesus. But are wavering on how to proceed in light of external persecution going on at this time. And internal persecution from those still embracing the tenements of Judaism. The tension and the pressures that are mounting are essentially they're pressing out a, a different answer to who this Messiah must be. And as you think about the question of the death of Jesus and why he had to die, I would counsel you to consider first why he had to come. This is so important. When you read what the Bible has to say about why Jesus came to earth, I believe it helps answer the question about his death on one hand. And it also motivates us, secondly, to actively, right now, live differently in light of such a suffering Savior. You see, his death comes to light as we grasp an understanding of his arrival. And this provides us a great segue into the text. Because this is the significance of Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, friends. Last week we were left with Jesus who was for a little time, verse 9, made lower than the angels, referencing his incarnation. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor... We talked about how his death made it possible for him to be crowned with glory and honor. It was through his death that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And so the writer is going to pick up right from there. And he's going to carry us through chapter 2 with a better handle on how this Jesus actually tasted death for everyone. What did this look like? And even more importantly, for his Jewish listeners struggling with hearing about a Messiah that had to die. 
the writer is going to show with great clarity right out of the gate, we'll see in verse 10, with great clarity how fitting it really is that God's redemption plan included a dying Savior. Friends, this is so important. This is so important. And so the question this morning that I'd like to address and deal with is, why then is the incarnation deemed a necessity according to the writer of Hebrews here? Why is the incarnation deemed a necessity? You know, a lot of times we talk about his arrival in the month of December, don't we? Friends, I think we need to consider his arrival more than just one month of the year. Because, you see, his arrival has everything to do with what happened in his life leading up to the pinnacle, the purpose, the big point, exclamation point, if you will, of why God sent him. And that's coming up next month when we're going to be celebrating Resurrection Sunday. Our Lord Jesus was raised from the tomb. We have much to be thankful for. We have much to glory in as we think about what our Savior did for us. Why is the incarnation deemed a necessity? I want to give you four things this morning in our time. The first one, the incarnation is necessary because it was God's plan for salvation. Because it was God's plan. I think that's the first thing we've got to understand. It was God's plan. Let's read verse 10. For it was fitting... For him. It was becoming for him, for God, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Kent Hughes in his commentary says Christianity has always had critics who using their self-generated ideas, have judged what a proper God should be like. The early Jewish Christians certainly encountered such critics among fellow countrymen who viewed the idea of a suffering Savior God as a completely inappropriate way to regard the God of the universe. To many minds, a suffering Savior was not a God-worthy concept, he says. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 begins to peel away any thoughts that the listener might have had that Christ's death is not consistent with the creator God. Oh, this is important. This is significant. He's showing that, yes, indeed, it is fitting to have such a Savior. In fact, if we look in in 1 Corinthians, there's a, there's a few verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that help us a bit here. And he's talking about the foolishness of this message preached. Verse 21, since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. Listen to verse 23. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified. We know that as Christ dying on the cross, right? Christ crucified. That's what we preach, Paul says. 
What do people think about that message? To the Jews, a what? A stumbling block. A stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So Christ crucified, that message of Christ crucified to the Jews was a stumbling block. A Messiah who had tasted death contributed to the hesitation to walk in Christ alone, it seems. It was fitting. comes right out and says it's fitting. The incarnation was necessary because this was God's plan. It was fitting for God. Notice the reference to the creation. For whom are all things? By whom are all things? It's sort of like he's given the credentials here of this one he's speaking of. He's saying, yes, the one who created all things, the one for whom all things are, it's fitting for this God. It's fitting for him for what? In bringing many sons to glory. The phrase bringing has in mind leading or driving the way, if you will. He's leading many. Notice not all. He's bringing many because not all are going to be there according to what we see in the scripture in glory. With him. But you see, as part of God's redemptive plan, it was fitting for this God, this God who created all things and for whom all things are made. It was fitting for him in bringing many sons to glory all the way through to the finish line. To make the captain of their salvation perfect. To help us understand that a little bit better. That was one of those phrases that always kind of did one of these on. I don't know about you. To make the captain of our salvation perfect. What is that speaking of? The verb is is essentially split up in the New King James. I would put it together to make perfect the captain of their salvation through sufferings. The word captain is a term that has military connotations among others. It has some uh, other connotations as well. But the one I'd like to reference that I think fits really well here is that of a military connotation referring to the commander of an army who went ahead of his men and blazed the trail for them. The idea here of the word is a a leader who opens up the way. So some of your translations might actually have uh, leader, might have author, might have pioneer. Pioneer is a great word here in terms of the understanding of that word. A pioneer, one who went ahead, one who opened up a new way. We think about those explorers years ago, Lewis and Clark. Remember, they went out and they opened up a new way, if you, if you will. A new understanding for those who went after them. Well, in a much greater significant way, we have one in Jesus Christ, the son of whom the Hebrew writer is speaking, who served as our captain. He served as our pioneer. 
In fact, this way that we're speaking of here, we see that Jesus himself in John 14, 6 says, I am the what? I am the way. See, Jesus himself is the way. We see a little bit later in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. It says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. That's Christ, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. In bringing many sons to glory, it's fitting. In bringing many sons to glory to make perfect the captain of their salvation through sufferings. What's he saying in verse 10? He's saying this. It was talking about the incarnation. Why is it necessary for the incarnation? It's necessary, as we look at this, it's necessary so that, because it's God's plan, it was fitting in God's plan of things to make this Jesus the pioneer, the one who was going to blaze the way. He's the pioneer And he was a pioneer that perfected. He perfected, not in the sense that Jesus had to be perfected because we know Jesus is what? Sinless. Let's be clear here. When it it talks about he made the captain of our salvation perfect. Not talking about Jesus at once he was sinful and now God's refining him to make him perfect in the sense that he failed or sinned. That's not what the scripture's saying. The word perfect is teleao, which has in mind to, um, to complete all the way to the end. It's the goal or the consummation of something. So in other words, as we look at verse 10 and we see the why behind the incarnation, it was fitting, it was in God's plan that in bringing many sons to glory, he was going to make this son of his our pioneer, our captain, the captain of our salvation, he was going to put as the the pinnacle, the goal of this salvation was going to include, that's why the verse 10 concludes with, through sufferings. The writer is trying to help us understand this was God's plan. That without him going through the sufferings, he is not the pioneer, truly. The sufferings and the completion of those sufferings qualify him, if you will, to be that pioneer who opened this new way. It's a wonderful truth to understand and to see. Why is the incarnation necessary? It's necessary because it's God's plan. Suffering for his son is a part of God the creator's plan. So for anyone to say otherwise about this Messiah and think that the Messiah that they are aware of doesn't have to die That smacks right in the face of what God says is his plan. It's fitting. It's fitting for him. And bringing many sons to glory to make the captain 
of their salvation perfect. Perfect through what? Through sufferings. So we're seeing how death of Jesus is fitting into the arrival of the Son. It fits into the arrival because it was a part of His plan, wasn't it? Let's keep looking at the text. Look at 11 through 13. For both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified... Two parties here. He who sanctifies, those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified, by the way, are those who are in Christ, right? Let's keep that in in mind. Are all of one. There's another interesting phrase. We'll talk about that. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed. You know, back in the Greek culture in the day, shame was a big deal. And still some cultures today, shame is a big deal. And reference here that he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Look what he does in 12 and 13. Gives us three scriptures. Three scriptures from the Old Testament. The first one is from Psalm 22. And if you know your Bible, you know Psalm 22 is messianic. Written hundreds of years before what happened to Christ on the cross. The second one comes from Isaiah chapter 8. And the third one comes from Isaiah chapter 8. The second one has a few other references of scripture you might have in your footnote as well. But for simplicity's sake this morning, Isaiah 8, 17 and Isaiah 8, 18. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now listen. The writer here of Hebrews wants us to see. He's given us three scriptures. And he's set those apart. With and again and again. He gives us three scriptures, I believe, to give us three messages to buttress, support, if you will, what he's just spoken of in verse 11. And the writer oftentimes does this. Uh, Paul does this a lot in Romans. He'll give us a fact, he'll give us a statement, and he'll follow it up with what? For it is written. Friends, what a, what a great way to operate, just thinking about practical application here for a moment. When we say something to be true, we don't say it to be true just because we think it so or we want it to be so. We don't say it just because it's our opinion. You know, sometimes folks come to me and they want my input on something. And I'm usually pretty quick to tell them right up front. I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm going to give you what I know to be true from the word of God. So when we put something out there, I hope and pray that we also have something upon which to stand from God's word. We see the writer doing this here, okay? He's doing this as he looks at these three passages of scripture. He who sanctifies refers to the Lord Jesus, the one who, as one writer says, puts the believer on the path to glory. I love that. 
He puts the believer on the path to glory and then through the ministry of the Holy Spirit leads him on that road through the process of progressive sanctification. Well, we see here in verses 11, 12, and 13 another reason for the necessity of the incarnation. And it's in order that Jesus might relate to man. Not only was this God's plan of redemption, but the incarnation is necessary in order that Jesus might relate to man. There's this solidarity that happens in 11, 12, and 13. He's trying to show us why it is that Jesus came. He's given us a behind the scenes and helping us understand he had to be made like us. When it says in verse 11 that he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. uh, The idea there is of source. So all of one source. They're all of one source. Of what source are they? We think about Jesus and we think about those who are being sanctified. In short, it's this. We share the same father. We share the same heavenly father. You know, the idea of being brethren has in mind of the same womb. He's saying that the one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are of the same source. We call upon the same Father. For which reason then, he says, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Listen, listen how profound and wonderful this is. We share the same father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Remember, for a little while he came down lower than the angels. He condescended. He stooped down. In his humiliation, he became like us. And we talked last week about us being crowned a little bit lower than the angels. Was That was our exaltation. But he, from the heavenlies, comes down. And in our sinless state, while we were yet sinners, the Bible still says here, he's not ashamed he's not ashamed and the connect point is this his father and the father of those who are being sanctified are one same father that's the reason according to what we read here for this reason he says he's not ashamed to call us brethren and so he goes in verse 12 giving the first one in isaiah 22 excuse me, Psalm 22, which is wonderful to read. If you haven't read it lately, I encourage you to read it. The first half of the psalm. In fact, this is the psalm, friends, that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do we recognize those words? Those were the words spoken by Christ, where? On the cross. And you read and you read and you read and you're able to see these glimpses of the cross. The things that 
actually happened to Jesus. And then you get to 21. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And I love this phrase. You have answered me. You see, the first part of this Psalm 22 is talking about his death and crucifixion, events leading up to, including. But then the last part speak of his resurrection. They speak of his exaltation. And he says, you have answered me. Christ is actually speaking here. Isn't it amazing that through these Psalms, the Lord himself is speaking. It hasn't even happened yet. And he says, you've answered me. You've answered me. He says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. In the midst of the ecclesia, I will praise you. Friends, this same Jesus, who is not ashamed to call them brethren, says here in this psalm, not only will I declare your father, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. What a wonderful picture. The Lord himself worshiping. In the midst of the assembly. The presence of the Lord in the midst of the assembly. Calling attention to the Father. Praising the Father. Did not Jesus in his lifetime do just that? Praise the Father. Everything he did was according to the Father. And here years before this event even happens. We have witness and testimony of it going to happen. Wonderful psalm. Isaiah chapter 8. That next one in verse 13 here in, in Hebrews 2. I will put my trust in him. I will put, remember, the incarnation is necessary in order that Jesus might relate to man. We're talking about the solidarity here of Christ with the brethren. And here in, in Isaiah, I will put my trust in him. Isaiah is speaking of a time. Things aren't looking so good. Assyria is about to come and attack. All have forsaken him. And Isaiah essentially declares that he's going to put his trust in God. The Hebrew writer here is speaking and using this in such a way as Christ lived, what did he do? He put his trust in his father. And I believe the connect point for us as his brethren is that we too ought to be in all things putting our trust in the father. Remember, we're of the same father. He's giving us some teaching points, some things for us to understand as we think about the solidarity of who we are in Christ. That third one in Hebrews 2.13, the third Old Testament scripture, and again, here am I and the children whom God, Isaiah had been given a couple children, son and a daughter. And as you know, many of the names in the day, they actually meant something. They were, they were signs, if you will. A lot of times names meant something in that regard. And so the two children essentially talked about how there was going to be struggle. And yet the one name represented and, and spoke to the fact that a remnant was going to remain. 
He says here, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. And he's giving us a picture here I think it's very important. As a father and children. It's this father-children relationship. When we think about our role as fathers and mothers that we have with the children God's given to us. It's our hope not only that we as individuals are trusting in him. That's the second quote. But I think this third quote is bringing out the very dependence that is necessary in the child-parent relationship. You see how that's so important as we're talking about the solidarity here. He's saying he's drawing out that as children of this father, we ought to be living our lives in such a way that we hold on to him, that we trust in him and depend on him for all things. The incarnation is necessary in order that we might relate to man. Jesus himself, excuse me, might relate to man. Keep reading in the scriptures. 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death, now we're going to get two reasons here. Why did he do this? That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime, all their living days, subject to to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Well, as we think about this third reason or necessity for the incarnation, we see here in 14 through 16 that the incarnation is necessary so that Jesus might die. So that he might die. It's it's necessary because it's his plan. He said it's fitting that it's to happen this way through sufferings. The incarnation is necessary so that he might be able to effectively relate to man through his son Jesus, this solidarity in place. But third, here in the text, we see that the incarnation is necessary so that Jesus might die. He had to become like us in order to die. He picks up from the last quote in 13, talking about the children. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. The word partaken, there is our Greek word koinonia. You've heard of the koinonia word, right? To share in common, to participate with. That's the idea of that word. As the children have partaken of, what what do they have in common? What's the writer getting at here? Let's be real clear. They've partaken together, the children have partaken together of flesh and blood. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise. Likewise is a word that combines two other words, alongside and nearby. Alongside and nearby. So in other words, the Lord Jesus in his incarnation, he took his place alongside and nearby the human race. He himself Likewise, shared. Now, shared is a different word than partake in the, in the previous part of the sentence. Shared has in mind to take part of, but it's made up of, of two words as well. 
See, understanding the words and how they fit together is very important. That's why I'm giving you some of this. I'm not giving you this to uh, give you a Greek lesson. I'm not. I'm giving it to you to help you understand the passage. I think it's important. Shared has in mind this idea of with and hold. Those are the two words. Withhold or to hold with. So we see that one writer actually says here, our Lord took hold of human nature without its sin, right? The Lord didn't have sin. Without its sin in the incarnation and held it to himself as an additional nature, thus associating himself with the human race as its possession of flesh and blood. He took to himself something which by nature he had nothing in common. He took to himself. And I'd like to differentiate the words here, have partaken. The children have partaken of flesh and blood. But it says, he himself likewise shared. Listen to this. Koinonia partakers marks the characteristic sharing of the common fleshly nature as it pertains to the human race at large. Whereas the word for shared, it speaks to the unique fact of the incarnation as a, listen, as a voluntary acceptance of humanity. Now friends, this verse right here gives us powerful, powerful evidence in the scripture for Christ being very God, very man. That's what we stand on. He's both. That's what this is teaching. And it's teaching that he had to come here in 14 through 16. He had to come in order to die. In order to die, he had to share in the humanity, flesh and blood. Why? That through death, there's two reasons given in the text. I'm not making these up. They're right here in the Bible. Two reasons. That through death, through death, going back to God's plan, is God's plan, he go through suffering, and that suffering was going to include death, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, who held within his grasp the dominion of death. We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? We see this. Who did they listen to? Whose voice? They listened to the evil one. God said not to eat, they ate, they sinned. Romans 5, 12, through one man sin entered the world. Death spread to all men. And the one who reigned over the dominion of death, if you will, was the devil. He's the one who had the power of death. He's the one who, as we see in this text, he's not only had the power and the dominion over death. By the way, just a side note, he doesn't hold the keys to death. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, you remember that, right? I have the keys to Hades and death. Not only does he have the key to life and the key to the heavenly city, he's got the key to death. There's nothing that our Lord and Savior doesn't have key over. Let's just be real clear. He's over all. But for a time here on this earth, while he holds sway, there's this power, this dominion that he has. That's why the Bible says in Revelations, it's but for a short time. His wrath is furious right now because he knows his time's short. 
So he shared in the same nature that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. He defines who that is. It's the devil. And if we pause for just a moment and we think, well, it sure doesn't seem like he's destroyed. Right. He is, but the completion of it's not there yet. You can put it in the bank that he is. He's already been, because the cross accomplished that. The cross accomplished that. The empty tomb shows us evidence of that. Death could not keep him in the grave. What else? Look at verse 15. Just as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared for what two reasons? First one, that he might destroy him who had the power of death and release, release, the word has in mind to set free. You think about somebody who's, who's had chains on. You get a picture of someone with chains and all wrapped up in chains. And this son came He came to identify as a man. And according to Hebrews 2, 14, 15, one of the reasons he came was to release. This is good. Some of you in here today need to hear this verse. He came to release those who through fear of death. Back in the day, as he's writing to his listener in first century, this was a big deal. People walked around all the time fearing death. But he came to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime, all their living days, subject to bondage. Subject to bondage. The word subject has in mind, has two words in mind, to hold in. And so essentially what was going on here was that death held sinners in bondage. And when Christ came and he took on and shared in the likeness of flesh and and blood and he died through his death, right? Through his death, through his sufferings. One of the things that happened is that he released, think about the picture of the person in, in chains. He released the chains of that one who for so long had been held in bondage to sin. What a picture. What a savior. Almost as a parenthetical, we see 16. It's connected. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. The word here, aid, It's the same word in verse 16. It's used twice. A different word in the New King James is in 18 for aid. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the word has in mind to take hold of or to to seize or to take to one's self. The word here in the context, one writer says, may very well have in mind the sense of to help or to assist or to draw someone to oneself to, to help. To take hold of to help. And the son is not giving aid or helping to angels. Notice his reason for becoming flesh and blood. It was that he might die. For what reason? To release the power of death from the one who had dominion over death. 
and to release, to set free the prisoner. I'm thinking about Christ, one of the reasons he came. Remember that passage in Isaiah? He came, what for reason? To release the prisoner. This is powerful. And he's, again, going back to the theme, which is Hebrews 1 and 2, Jesus being better than the angels. He inserts this here in verse 16. It's kind of, oh, by the way, remember what we've been talking about. He didn't come to give aid to angels. He didn't come and die to give aid to angels. He came and he died to give aid and help to what we'll see here, the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.29, okay, the seed of Abraham. So the incarnation is necessary because it's God's plan. It's necessary that Jesus might be able to relate to man, the solidarity with man. What we just covered here, the incarnation is necessary so that we have this understanding that Jesus might die. But there's two verses left. It gives us our last and final reason for the necessity of the incarnation, and that's this. The incarnation is necessary for Jesus to perform his high priestly and helper role. This is important. You know, a lot of what we're talking about today, I think, helps ground us on solid footing theologically, understanding who this Jesus is. And we ought to desire to want to know more of who he is and not simply have the right answer that he came to save us from our sins. Praise God, you know the answer. But I hope and pray that's not all we know. Look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore, someone's wrapping this all together. In all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Purpose clause, here it is. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Why is that so important? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. The suffering qualifies his being tempted. Being tempted is what he's highlighting here in verse 18. Suffering characterizes the nature of his temptations. He is able to aid those who are tempted. Merciful. When we sing songs about our merciful, our wonderful, merciful Savior. But here it speaks of that feeling of, of sympathy with the misery of another that leads one to act in his behalf to relieve the misery. The idea here is of a compassionate heart leading one to acts of mercy, the purpose of which is to relieve the suffering and misery of the object of that compassion. Listen, you and me are the objects of his compassion. Have you ever thought about that? He's merciful. Titus chapter, chapter 3 talks about being by his mercy he's saved us. But he's also faithful. Listen, he's faithful in two ways. He's faithful in his loyalty to his father. 
first of all. But he's also faithful in the sense that he is trustworthy to the people as a high priest. Someone who can be relied upon to act rightly. He's faithful. He's faithful God. He's a faithful son. Loyal to his father. He's someone that we can trust. We can always rely upon. He's going to keep talking about this idea of Jesus being the high priest throughout much of Hebrews. Here it's introduced. But we see there at the end of 17 that follow on, why that's so important that he be a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation or reconciliation, some of your translations might have. In its biblical understanding, one of the writers gives us a helpful uh, uh, tip on on this understanding of, of the text. He said this act refers, talking about the propitiation, refers to the Lord offering himself on the cross to satisfy the righteous demands of God's justice so that his government might be maintained and that mercy might be shown on the basis of justice satisfied. Okay? One writer says this may be more helpful for us. A holy God, think about it, a holy God cannot look upon sin with any degree of allowance. Right? A righteous God cannot but require that the demands of the violated law be satisfied. And a loving God cannot but provide the very payment of the penalty which his law demands. Thus, the writer here shows the sweet reasonableness of the cross. It's fitting in bringing many sons to glory. That through his sufferings, he was going to perfect the captain of their salvation. It's fitting. God the Father provides the salvation. God the Son procures it. And God the Holy Spirit applies it. Isn't that wonderful? Look at the last verse. We talked about the incarnation being necessary that he might be the high priest, but it's also necessary that he might be truly our helper. The word tempted comes from a word that refers first to putting someone to the test to see what good or evil is in the one tested. And second, because so many broke down under the test and committed sin, the word came to mean a solicitation to do evil. You know, see in some texts where temptation and test, right? James gives this, James chapter 1, you see this. Both meanings are in view here. You know, we look at this text and we see in, in that he himself, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Friends, I think about three scriptures that come to mind. And they're all in the same book, Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. Our Lord Jesus was tempted, wasn't he? Chapter 4, he was tempted three different occasions by the devil, by the evil one. Matthew 16, 
You might remember Peter after he had got a right answer about you are the Christ. Right after that. Sort of kind of puts his arm around Jesus after Jesus tells him that he's going to die. And, Jesus, and Peter says, no, not you, Lord. Remember the phrase? Get behind me what? Satan. For you have in mind not the things of God, but the things of the world. Matthew 26, Jesus is in the garden and he's praying, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Each one of those three passages I just mentioned, I want you to look at Jesus' response. In Matthew 4, he responds out of a habit of life, quoting the truth of the scriptures in Deuteronomy. Listen, application, listen. The believer has the same resource. Hide his word in your heart that you might not sin against him. What about Matthew 16? Jesus responds by choosing the way favored by God and not mankind. The believer has the same resource. Listen, I realize every single one of us have a lot of options available to us, right? You can't go to a grocery store. I, I, I want to get something at the store and I'm going down the aisle. Sometimes I have to get on the phone and, and call my wife because it's like, honey, there's all kinds of options. Beans. What, what kind of beans? Red, green? All these beans. And it's aisle after aisle of options. We have all kinds of options. We're going to choose the Lord's way or we're going to choose the world's way. Jesus gives us how he responded. He responded as the Father would respond. And what about Matthew 26? As he's praying, if it's possible, let this cup. What's his response? He responds with, you know the words, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You see, he was willing to choose death rather than satisfy self, wasn't he? The believer has the same resource available. I think of Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him what? Let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny himself. We are not a very good people in this regard of denying ourselves. We like to instead indulge ourselves. Deny yourself. Luke 6, verse 40. Jesus says a disciple is not above his teacher but everyone who is perfectly trained, perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Not my will, but yours be done. Listen, for, for a group of folks held in tension about whether to persevere in the faith or succumb to the traditions of Judaism and external persecutions, this last word right here in verse 18 popped off the page as wonderful news to those who would have been hearing it. It says that he is able. Those are the last words. He is able. He is powerful enough. He has the ability, having been tempted himself, and that temptation is characterized by what he suffered, he is able to aid, provide assistance to help to those who are tempted. The word aid here in verse 18, so helpful for us to understand. It has in mind to run to the cry of those in danger and bring them aid. To run to the cry of those in danger and bring them aid. I don't want to leave you with this word picture. Because what was true for the first century listener is also true for you today, friends. 
This pioneer, this leader, this captain of our salvation has made it possible through his incarnation for you to be helped through any temptations you might be facing today. Any temptations. No matter what the temptation, Jesus has gone before you. He's deemed the forerunner, Hebrews chapter 6. He's gone through, he's experienced the sufferings on your behalf that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest interceding on your behalf before the Father. And if you're in Christ and you've placed your faith in him alone for your salvation, this is the one who is working on your behalf. This is the one who is available at your defense. This is the one who is ready, waiting to bring you aid when he hears you cry. couldn't help but think of the picture in Luke 15, 20. It comes in the context of the parable of the lost son. Verse 20 says, when he was still a great way off, the father, remember, I picture him on the porch, every day coming out to see if his son, his prodigal, is going to return. And while he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had what? Compassion. And ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I think of 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have what? We have an advocate. A judicial term. We have an advocate. One who goes before us, before the Father. Remember, we are of the same Father. He's our advocate going before us. It's Jesus Christ the righteous. So friends, I hope we see from the passage that the incarnation is a necessity. It was God's redemptive plan. It was necessary for Jesus to identify with mankind. It was necessary so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. And it was necessary so that he could even... Now, help us in our time of need, having himself suffered. Isn't this good news? This is wonderful news. So we talk about why did he have to die or why did he die? Those are good questions to consider. But I believe the Hebrew writer this morning gives us a question that we ought to preface A question that we ought to consider as a precursor to those questions because when we understand why he came, we see that in his coming, the purpose for his coming, which included his death and sufferings, fits into that. So having a right understanding of the incarnation, the arrival of the Son. Oh, friends, it's so important. And I I do believe as we get to the end of chapter 2, it puts a stamp, if you will, So that we can say without a doubt, yes, Jesus is superior to the angels. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news. We rejoice in the arrival of your son and what that meant, what that brought about. Thank you for teaching us this morning, Lord, the significance of this passage. And I pray we would carry this passage with us throughout our days, that it would not be something we just 
here today and forget about tomorrow. But Lord, the truths that are embedded in this text, I believe are foundational to our faith. They're foundational for us in understanding who this Jesus is. And Lord, in a day that we live in that is firing away daily at the foundations of the faith, I pray that passages like this would be held near and dear to our heart. And I pray, Father, for this group of people here, many of whom have grown up, at least the children, many of whom have grown up understanding, hearing the scriptures being read. I pray, Lord, that we would not be like the person we talked about up front, the one who simply says, I know the answer to the question. But there's a disconnect in their life between knowing the answers and living the scripture truth out. Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to live these scripture truths that we know that you've given to us. And Father, I pray with these truths that we would not just compile them inside of ourselves. But Lord, you've called us to be witnesses to Jesus all of our days. And that means opening up our mouths and speaking these words of truth. We thank you, Father, that you not only spoke through your Son, but you did something as well in addition to that. You sent him down here to live and to die. And what he did as pioneer, captain of our salvation greatly affects us even yet today some 2,000 years later and so Lord we say thank you for that and I pray Lord that we would remember and take with us today this last verse in verse 18 especially and remember that whatever temptation whatever trial may be coming our way that Lord we have someone in Jesus Christ who has gone through has completed all the way through sufferings he's been tempted And as our merciful and faithful high priest, he stands ready to come to our defense as we cry out to him. Father, that is good news. That's a message of comfort and a message of hope. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.